across here, gathering at Central and also at Showling and also um, at, in our Bitten Park Hub. We've been following the theme of the parables of Jesus over recent weeks. And we're going can, to can continue to do that over the next uh, couple of months. And I, for one, I don't know how you found it, but there is so much life, there's so much richness in the parables for God, uh, for God to speak into us. Still so important for us today. There's the life of Jesus and the hope of God and so much truth instilled in them. So it's wonderful this morning to have Amy speaking on the prodigal son or the lost son called different things in different translations. So as Amy comes to speak to us, I'm just going to pray. Father, we just want to thank you for what you're speaking into us as a community at the moment. And thank you for the parables that you told that speak so richly to us. And Father, as Amy comes to speak to us this morning, we thank you for the wisdom that you've placed in her. And Lord, we just ask that you would speak to each one of us. Open our hearts and our ears and our minds to hear what it is that you have to say. Amen. Thank you. Good morning, everybody. I'm going to start by handing the mic straight to somebody else. <laughs> um, David's going to come down and read the scripture for us. Thank you, Amy. I'm delighted to read this because it's one of my favorite parables. The parable of the lost son. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, 
and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and you never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Thank you. Wow, what a story. This parable's been like reverberating around my mind for weeks. Um, In fact, weeks before Theo said that's what I'd be speaking on, this is a parable that God has been speaking to me through. Um, And I feel like he wants to speak to us this morning personally and with joy and with hope. And I practiced this talk last night and it was way too long, so I'm going to jump straight in. So, we've just heard the parable that Jesus tells. If we kind of step back a little bit to look at what the context of this is, we see um, in chapter 14, it talks about the fact that there was a large crowd that traveled with Jesus. A big group followed him around. His teachings, his miracles attracted a lot of interest and attention. Um, Sometimes people wanting to hear these life-giving words and some people kind of waiting to catch Jesus out. And we know it says that he was watched carefully in chapter 14. And in the midst of these crowds who are listening and Jesus is telling various stories, there's a, a complaint made, a grumbling. This is in chapter 15, verse 2, so a little bit before the parable starts where one of the Pharisees, or teachers of the law, who were also very much paying attention to what Jesus was saying, said, this man welcomes and eats with sinners. Now, when we take this line on its own, we might read it and go, this man welcomes and eats with sinners, and see it as a really good thing. But we know that's not what the Pharisees' attitude was. They were offended. And the Pharisees often clashed with Jesus, disagreeing with him on how the law should be interpreted. After all, the Pharisees were a uh, Jewish social movement, and they were known for their meticulous adherence to the law, and their overt and their public commitment to it. They relied on it for their identity, their sense of purpose, and their security in God. Doing the right thing, or perhaps more accurately being seen to do the right thing, was their life's work, on which their status their authority and their pride was built. And the way that Jesus lived and the way that he loved people and welcomed them and even worse, ate with them, was offensive, outrageous, and probably confusing to the Pharisees and religious leaders because they really believed that they were the ones getting it right. And I do find there's some irony here where the complaint is that he welcomes and eats with sinners. And actually, again, in the previous chapter, it says Jesus was having dinner with a prominent Pharisee and a group, another group who were probably other Pharisees, because most likely the Pharisees would have associated with people like themselves. 
They were grumbling about Jesus welcoming sinners and eating with them, and they're blind to the truth. Actually, he wouldn't have sat and had a meal with them if that weren't the case. But the Pharisees don't see themselves that way. The sinners are the others. The misfits, the liars, the thieves, the sexually immoral, the lawbreakers, basically everybody except them. So the complaint is made. He welcomes and he eats with sinners. And Jesus, hearing this, takes the opportunity to deliver what what I think is some of the most powerful imagery in the Gospels of grace and love. So he starts talking in parables. He tells the parable of the lost sheep and then the lost coin. And then the third in the trilogy is the return of the jet. No, is the lost son. (laughs) And each one follows the themes of something important has been lost the joy of it being found again, and then the celebration. But what I love about this parable is it's the most human of the three because all the characters involved are people. It's all about people. So the main characters, who are they? We've got the older son doing the right thing, working hard, stays with dad. We've got the younger son, wants an adventure, a bit restless, and has his own ideas of what a good life looks like. And we've got the father who's raised both of these sons who go on to make very different choices. Um, I work in a secondary school as part of the student welfare team, and we have a student welfare hub open at every break and lunchtime for students to come to, to kind of retreat from the the chaos and the hustle and bustle of the playground. And recently, a conversation broke out, and it was this kind of bizarre one-upmanship of how awful their dads were. My dad left when I was five. My dad dad left when I was three. I've never met my dad. My dad's awful, we've got a restraining order against him, and if I ever see him, I'll kill him. My dad drinks a bottle of vodka a night. Difficult circumstances, and they may be more subtle than the examples I just gave, can impact our ability to relate to God as a father. And I just feel it's right to acknowledge that this parable might be hard for some people. We all have different relationships with our dads. And I just, my prayer this morning is that I just pray in Jesus' name that a revelation is released straight from the heart of God to your heart, if this is a tricky parable for you. That it bypasses the kind of need for a human element of something to relate to, and then it goes straight from God's heart to yours. And I just felt that was important to say. So let's go back to the scripture. So it begins, Jesus continued... There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he'd spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. So the son decides, I'm going to do my own thing. He goes as far away as he can. And the scripture said he lives a wild life. And we can all fill in the blanks as to what that might mean in some ways. I don't think the details are that important. It's not relevant. We're all capable of making a mess in thought, in word, and in deed, in big ways and in small ways. The point here is that he takes his inheritance, he takes the gift, and he removes himself from the giver, and it doesn't go well. He very quickly finds himself empty-handed and alone. He's at rock bottom. No money, no food, no body. 
And then the scripture says when he comes to his senses, he comes back to his dad. He decides my, his servants, my dad's servants, have a better life than I do. I'm going to go back. I'm going to repent. I'm going to tell him I've messed it up. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. This is so countercultural right now. Often when we hear this parable, I've heard it talked about how undignified it would have been in those days for the father to run to the son. That was not something that a father did, that a man did. But now, even now, this is so countercultural in a time where it feels like people turn their backs on each other more easily than ever before. The father would have known immediately when he saw his son that things had gone belly up. There'd been a famine. The son would have been emaciated, probably. Dirty, probably weak and in poor health. He's not in a good way. The father would know the money's run out. And he's filled with compassion and he runs to him. And the kind of forgiveness that we see here, that doesn't even wait for a sorry, is radical. It always has been. It always will be. The father didn't know at that point why the son was heading back. He hadn't said anything yet. For all the dad knew, the son might have been coming to say, can I have some more money because I've spent it all? Can I now have some of my older brother's inheritance? The father didn't know. He ran towards him. He ran towards him, even though there was a trail of pain and destruction behind that son, starting with his dad, the first one that he hurt by saying, I want my inheritance and I'm going. And these days, maybe you've heard some of these terms being used, cancel culture. Canceling was first used by young people on the internet as a way of saying, I am done with you. And has grown to become associated with shunning or boycotting certain people, usually with devastating um, consequences, including financial ruin, family breakdown, and even suicide. Another term that's used a lot these days is toxic. That person is toxic. And it's used to describe behavior as well. And according to Healthline, which I think is an American organization, but it's accessed, they claim, by 150 million people a month, say signs of a toxic person include dishonesty, self-centeredness, and difficulty offering compassion to others. Well, that could be me on any day of the week. And the advice given by a therapist is this. If you can ignore the toxic person completely, that is ideal. Another term or another thing that's become more common these days, parent-child estrangement. Parents or adult children who've cut each other out of their lives, you can now divorce your parents. And according to a British survey, abuse and severe trauma aside, the themes running through the reasons for adult children divorcing their parents include you weren't a good parent and we don't have the same values. And I can't help but wonder if this was playing out in a soap opera on our TV screens now, this story, would we perhaps see the wayward son return and the father saying, you are a toxic person. Look at the mess you've made. I, as far as I'm concerned, I don't have a son anymore. You're an embarrassment to the family. I don't even want to hear your name again. And actually, even just in the news this week, Philip Schofield, you might have seen his brother, has been sent to prison for some horrific abuses. And Philip Schofield has been quoted as saying, as far as I'm concerned, I no longer have a brother. Now, 
please hear me when I say I'm not advocating for a lack of boundaries when it comes to people keeping themselves safe and staying away when relationships are damaging and abusive. This is not about dismissing those instances when people need to be kept away. And it's not about trying to gloss over trauma. But this is about reminding ourselves that this grace is not like any we will find in the world on our own. This is radical grace. And this is the only God, the only faith that offers that. Jesus is the only one who's made a way for the wrongs of the whole world to be covered and forgotten when he ran towards us while we were still sinners by giving up his life on the cross. In Philip Yancey's book, What's So Amazing About Grace, he writes, ask people what they must do to get to heaven and most reply, be good. Jesus' stories contradict that answer. All we must do is cry, help. God welcomes home anyone who will have him and in fact has made the first move already. God didn't wait for a sorry before he sent Jesus. Jesus didn't wait for a sorry before he spent time with sinners, nor before he went to the cross. God has run towards us in our mess. And the invitation to accept the gift of forgiveness, of mercy, of grace is ours to accept or refuse. And the next verse shows us that the son makes his apology, having been embraced by the father first. He says what his, he's prepared. I've sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father, we know, embraces him, welcomes him in. And we know that the son repents, accepts the gift of forgiveness, allows the father to draw him in and reinstate him as a son in his house. And what joy followed. But the story doesn't end here. This is the bit that I really love. And often the focus of this parable lies with the younger son. It's the most obvious. He's ballsed it up. He's gone off and he's done stupid things. And it's really clear that he's wasted the money and he's hurt everybody. And the father runs and it's very public and very obvious. This kind of powerful and moving image of reconciliation. Some Bible translations refer to this parable as the parable of the two sons or the two brothers. And I really like that because I don't believe that the older son is just a supporting actor to provide contrast. Let's go back to the scripture again. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked what was going on. Your brother's come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. Have you ever been so overcome with emotion that you've been unable to bring yourself to join in with something even though the thing that's happening is really positive and wonderful? Um, in our first year of marriage, I worked for Winchester Young Carers Project and part of my job every year was to organize our residential to the Young Carers Festival which was camping at Fairthorn Manor for a weekend. The buck stopped with me. So you can imagine it was permission slips, registers, medical forms, who's coming, where are they camping, do we have the equipment, kit list for them and for me, food, blah, 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 blah. Those of you preparing for wildfires, you know the feeling, <laughs> except being responsible for like 30 children. Um, and it was the week before I was due to go. We go Friday to Sunday, and I was stressed, and I had checklists in my mind, everything I needed to be on top of. And my wonderful husband, we'd been married for about six months at the time, I think. I've got a surprise for you. 
Oh, right. I've booked a hotel. I know you're stressed about the festival. I know it's going to be really full on. You're going to be camping. I've booked a hotel and spa in the New Forest for the night before the festival. Wow. Oh, I really wanted to be happy. You're allowed to laugh, by the way. We've laughed about this a lot in the 11 years since. And I don't come out of this very well, so you can all think how amazing Gaz is, because he is. Um, I was not happy. I was so angry. <laughs> do you not understand at all how stressed I am? I've got so much to do. I can't spend a night in a hotel, in a spa, in a sauna the night before we're going camping. I've got lists in my head. I've got stuff in my boot that I need to sort out. I have to be back work at like 11 o'clock tomorrow morning to go down and set everything up. And instead of saying, which I should have done and would now, I'm really sorry, this is so lovely, thank you, but we, I can't, we have to move it. Can we please change the date? I didn't do that. I thought, no, be a good wife, we're going to go, it'll be fine. And I just seized and sulked the whole time. So we get there, <laughs> and uh, Gaz is like, should we go and get some food? Lovely restaurant downstairs. No, I'm not hungry. Too stressed to eat. Can't, can't do it. And he's like, okay, well, I'm hungry, because he is always hungry. And it's not fair for him not to eat, so he quite rightly went down and ate by himself in the restaurant while I stayed in our room. And then he comes back up, and he says, why don't we go down to the spa? Nope, I can't do that. I can't go to the spa. I'm too stressed. I'm too stressed. I've got too much to think about. And he's like, okay, I'll go to the spa on my own. <laughs> he goes to the spa. <laughs> and because he's so wonderful, he came back up and went, it's so lovely down there, Amy. Please come down with me. It'll be so much more fun if you're there. We can enjoy it together. And I said, okay, you're right. No, I didn't. I went, no, I can't. I'm sorry. I'm not in the mood. Too stressed, too angry. So he went back to the spa on his own. <laughs> And the son, the older son, is so angry. He's so upset. I'm not going in. I'm not going to join in with that. He can't bring himself to go and enjoy the party. The best food, the best wine, the music. He doesn't go in. He's on the outside, raging. And then the verse that changes everything. Oh, no, he's leaving. <laughs> He'll be back. <laughs> The next verse says, so his father went out and pleaded with him. Oh, I love this. The father notices only one of my sons is here. My younger son is here. Where is my older son? And he leaves the party. He leaves the extravagance, the music, the celebration to find the older son. And he pleads with him. He doesn't go out and tell him off. He pleads with him. And the Bible doesn't tell us exactly what words he uses. It just says he pleaded with him. But we know that pleading or begging, as the New Living Translation describes it, means that he earnestly and humbly appeals to his oldest son. So I imagine him saying, maybe a bit like Gaz did, please come in and join us. It would be so much better if you were there. You don't have to be on the outside. Come and see what is so beautiful about this moment. I want you here. Come and enjoy the, the food, the music, be part of the party. Lay down your anger. You are my beloved son. I see you. My love and my joy and my delight in you has never wavered because you are my son. 
And actually, I love that the father going out and pleading with the oldest son and sharing his heart first and extending love and grace first allows the son to be really real with the dad about what he's feeling. (laughs) He now feels psychologically safe to share his anger. And it's not pretty. It might be the rudest he's ever been to his dad, bearing in mind that we know the oldest son has tried really hard to please dad and to stay and to keep his responsibilities and do the right thing. And now he's letting it out and it's raw and it's real. And he says, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me a young goat even so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. He's hurting. It's unfair. It's confusing. He's angry. Why hasn't me staying and doing the right thing been enough for my father to splash all this cash on my account? Why is it okay for my brother to behave the way he did and become welcomed back and celebrated? Why is my dad rewarding such shameful and rebellious behavior? He doesn't deserve this, my brother. I've been faithful to my responsibilities. Hmm, this sounds very similar to the comment made at the beginning by the Pharisee or the teacher of the law. This man welcomes and eats with sinners. It's the same feeling. Let's remind ourselves who Jesus' audience is for this parable. This is a powerful moment where Jesus is speaking right to the heart of the legalism, pride, and law-based security of the teachers of the law and the Pharisees who are listening. You might even feel a bit like he's sort of reading their minds, really, putting into words what they're all feeling on the inside. And yet the father's first words in the parable in response to the angry outbursts are, my son. My son, a reminder again of his father's compassion towards him and his position that cannot be earned or bought. My son, my son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. That grace and truth together. The father says, everything I have is yours. My heart has always been towards you because you are my son. Don't miss it. Don't miss the point. I see your anger. I see your pride, your bitterness, your striving, all your sin and your mess, your desire for my approval. I see it. But you're my son, and that's always been enough. Just like it's enough for your younger brother. Now, in Matthew 23, Jesus has a lot of very strong words for the Pharisees. It's some of the most kind of strongly worded rebuke, I guess, that we see Jesus give. And his main point, really, is that they have missed the point with the law. They have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, faithfulness. And it feels like in this moment, Jesus is addressing the Pharisees, the law, teachers of the law, It's never been about earning approval or being seen to be good or better than anyone else. It's always been about relationship. It's always been about accepting the love and the mercy and the grace of God. And that is always worth celebrating. So, 
the father shows up for both sons. He runs towards both sons. He extends unconditional, passionate, pursuing compassion, love, forgiveness to both sons. The invitation to accept it is offered to both sons, regardless of their respective failings in thought, word, or deed. This is not just Jesus explaining to the Pharisees God's heart towards the tax collectors, the women of ill repute, the sinners, to explain why he welcomes them and eats with them. If it was, he could have stopped. He could have stopped when the father welcomed the son and they had a party. The end. He could have stopped there. I believe this is Jesus inviting the Pharisees to see themselves in the story and to recognize that there is a father who comes to them in their outrage, who sees them, who sees all the ugly reality of their hypocrisy and pride, all the pain of their bitterness and resentment, and comes to plead with them to lay down their anger, to stop striving for status or perfection, to stop striving for the moral high ground, and to come in, come to him, to receive the same love and grace that is extended to the lowly, the imperfect, and the immoral. He does not need them to be good. He only invites them to cry, help. Now, we don't find out if the older son chooses to go in or not. We don't know if he decides to move towards the father's love in the end or if he continues to stay outside. But if he'd gone in, I can't help but imagine that the celebration would have doubled on the spot because I think the father would have gone, yes, they're both here. They've both accepted it. Let's have the biggest party we've ever had. Get another goat or whatever. <laughs> so to finish, in his book, Gentle and Lowly, Dane Ortland writes, the cumulative testimony of the four Gospels is that when Jesus Christ sees the fullness of the world, all about him, his deepest impulse, his most natural instinct is to move toward that sin and suffering, not away from it. God makes the first move towards each of us repeatedly in our rebellion and in our legalism. And let's face it, we're all moving around on that spectrum on a regular basis <laughs> between a little bit of rebellion, a little bit of legalism, trying to find that sweet spot in the grace of God that probably we won't really find till we see him face to face. But uh, nevertheless, he comes again and again wherever we're at and invites us in. Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So I'm going to invite the band back up, please. Um, God's love is deeply personal and it's always relevant. And so we're going to give a little bit of time over to worship again. And I feel like this morning there are kind of two Areas to perhaps, I guess, be aware of as we come, come back before the presence of God to worship. The first one is our response to that invitation, that ongoing invitation. If you feel on the outside today, he comes to you. If you're angry or you're hurting, he comes to you. If you're bitter or resentful, he comes to you. If you're ashamed, he comes to you. 
And if you've messed it all up, he comes to you. There's a place for you. There's a father who runs towards you. There is a God who is passionately for you. And there is an invitation to receive forgiveness and grace and to come into his house, be reinstated as a son or a daughter, and to celebrate. But I also feel like this is something that speaks to us about how we love each other. Do we reach out? Do we extend that invitation to others? If we see someone on the outside, on the fringes, if we see someone wrestling with some really difficult emotions, if we see people who are bound up by shame and they don't really know what next step to make, can we be the ones? Can we be the ones to go to them and go, there's a place for you. You don't have to sort it out first. You're invited first. Please don't stay on the outside. Please don't isolate yourself. Please don't be alone. And we do that for each other as the family of Christ. And we do that for those around us in the world. And we draw them in with the Father's love because we love because he loved us first. And freely we've received, so freely we give that out. So we're just going to have some space to keep worshipping. Use it however you need. Perhaps if there's a prayer, is there a prayer team this morning? We can invite the prayer team down. Please just come. Please just come and celebrate the love that God has for you again. Celebrate it in all your imperfection. That's what I'm going to do. And let's just be so glad and grateful for what Jesus has done for us. And let's be conscious of how we can extend that to those around us. So I'm just going to pray. Father God, you have shown us through Jesus what love and grace can do for us and for the world. Would you meet with us now as we bring you our lives again? Where we need help to accept your love and grace, would you help us to let our walls down? And where we need to repent, help us to lay down our pride. And where we need to celebrate, would you release joy? And where we need to forgive those who've caused us pain, would you lead us in your grace? Where those around us are hurting or feel on the outside, would you give us your heart that we might extend the same invitation of compassion and kindness? Thank you, thank you, thank you, God, that you gave up your beloved son to die while we were still sinners so we could all be called children of God. Amen.